You can donate to keep the Historian's Podcast on the internet by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. This is Don Williams. I'm here today to talk about my book, My Grandfather's Tool Chest. I should explain a little bit how it became Grandfather's Tool Chest because um, Grandfather was my inspiration for my book. He was a carpenter, an Adirondack guide, and a farmer up in the Adirondacks. And I inherited all my love of the Adirondacks and my love of tools and all those things, I think, from my grandfather. Uh, He was my inspiration for writing the book and for getting all that information down that includes the stories and the way the tools were used for over 400 tools. It's a book that weighs almost four pounds and (laughs) includes 400 colored photographs and all the stories that go with the tools. You know, when you talk to an author whose book is described on the weight, you know you've got a good a good subject here. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're talking with Don Williams, a well-known Adirondack writer and a resident of the city of Gloversville. And you told us about the, the fact that you're grandfather had a tool chest and th- th- is that the tool chest that's pictured on the cover of the book yes you're right that we actually uh made the cover of the book exactly like a tool chest with the latches and the corners and all those kind of things and made it the color of a of a uh, of a tool chest so if you look at it you think you're holding the tool chest <laughs> i mean it, even uh my age, or you know, as I'm getting older, as you are too, we both are. I'll sometimes, my wife will sometimes say, "Well, what was this? Oh, that was something we used." Blah 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 blah. Right. You kind of forget what the point of having these tools was, right? Right. That's what I found out. I, I of course, I started collecting the tools some 50 years ago, and I had my grandfather's tools and so on. And as I collected the tools, I decided I better start collecting the stories because. I would go and speak to an elderly group, and there'd be two or three people there that recognized the tools, and there'd be a lot of people that didn't recognize them. And and, and then I got stories, you know, this tool is used this way, and this tool is used that way. So I thought, I better start writing those stories down. So as I collected the tools, I collected the stories, because we were, we were losing a lot of that. And one of the tools that you talk about, you say, is racket-like, a U, with a U-shaped piece of cedar many think it's a rug beater however what did you find that it is yeah it was kind of interesting i it looks like a rug beater it has a handle on it and gets curved up around it but it's made of just a, a thin piece of cedar and uh, for years uh, you know i i assumed along with everybody else that that was a rug beater i would hold it up in a meeting i'd say everybody knows what this is don't they and they all say rug beater well i started researching it because it bothered me that if i hit a rug with that piece of wood i'm sure i would break it so finally i think it was in eric sloan's books or one of the uh, the ancient tool books i found that it was a feather bed fluffer it's a piece of uh wood really that you would fluff up your feather bed they used to have mattresses with filled with feathers to make your bed nice and soft and in the morning when you got up it'd be all lumpy or holy or whatever so you just fluff it up with the feather bed fluffer <laughs> what is a spud i mean i it has a couple of meanings but i believe you have a specific one that applies to a tool yeah that's my favorite tool because i tell everybody and i use this story for years that uh i became an adirondacker because of the spud 
my grandfather's name was John Whitman, so he came down from a line of Whitmans, my mother's through my mother's family. Way back in my sixth grade grandfather, they decided they moved from Long Island up to the Adirondacks. And the William Wells, who was settling the Wells area at that time up in Hamilton County, talked to his friend, uh, uh, one of the Whitman boys, to come up to Wells and uh, open a tannery. So he got a spud and he came up to Wells with his family and settled in Wells and opened one of the first tanneries in 1792 at the, in the southern Adirondacks. And the spud was used to pull the bark off the cedar or off the uh, hemlock trees. And uh, the reason they had to do that was because they need tannic acids to tan all the hides. They wanted to get into the glove and leather business and so on, so they needed the tannic acid. So they would take the the uh, spud and they'd get the bark off and they'd build the tanneries right where the trees were. And uh, for many many years, that was a, a, a great industry and. Uh, Mm. The sputter, who was a guy that stuck it behind the bark and peeled that bark off the tree, uh, was the uh, highest paid man in the woods. Some of the other jobs are more dangerous, but he he had a, a knack for getting that bark off. And the more bark he could get off, of course, the more money the company made. So a sputter was a real talented person. What does this spud look like? It's just a long uh, tool. It's got a, like a wooden handle, and then there's a metal or a, a heavy iron part put right on the end of it that comes down to a to kind of a rounded, sharp kind of little end on it. And you just stick that behind the bark and pull on it, and it would uh, pull that bark off. They would score the tree with an axe first into certain size sheets, and then he would just go through and peel those right off. And I actually have one that uh, an elderly gentleman, Wells, built a log cabin up there, and he took the uh, an old piece of iron spring off of a Model Model T car and uh, made himself a spud out of a out of a piece of metal off the car. So he had a good homemade spud that worked as good as a as a manufactured one. Now some of the the tools it, you say nobody knows what is it or what it is. I did two or three pages in the back of the book of tools that I could never find the actual use of or the name of. But that was kind of typical because if Every tool had to be invented, and somebody would invent a tool and use it for a certain purpose and then die off, and nobody knew what that tool was being used for. So I have several of those tools that were one purpose, I'd say, one purpose type of tool, and uh, the person who made them is no longer around. So I'm, I'm so happy when I find somebody that recognizes one of those tools and we can get the story on it. Now, you tell one story about how you would thought one thing and then somebody at one of your talks convince you that it is the other, and this has to do with bungs, B-U-N-G. What is a bung? Oh, that was the bung. They, they call it a bung starter was the name of it. And, and uh, I bought that at a, a Mayfield uh, antique show, and I before I got out of the room, I met two different guys that, said, that were friends of mine that said, oh, you got yourself a bung starter. And then they both recognized it, and I, I went home, so I looked up bung starter. And uh, I just found it. It was what it was. What it was. It was a looked like a wooden fly swatter, and uh, so I went around telling people that I got a bunk starter, and it, they took the, the wooden bunk to put it in the barrel. To, uh, they had a whiskey or cider or something in it, and they put the bung in the hole to you know to keep it from leaking. And you take this fly swatter thing and you bang on it to get that bung in the hole, and so you wouldn't lose your uh, your contents. Well, I did this for several years, and I was over in Long Lake telling stories to an elderly group, and 
afterwards, this kind gentleman came up. He says, uh, Don, he says, I can help you out. He says, I can show you how to use that bug starter. I said, oh, good, I said, because mm-hmm. I've never met anybody that, you know, actually used it. And he says, uh, you said it was to pound the bung in the barrel, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he says, I'm sorry to tell you, he says, it's not to put the bung in the barrel. It's to take the bung out of the barrel. I says, oh, yeah? And he says, yeah. He said, look at the flat part. He says, where you said you would be banging on the bung. Do you see any marks on there? I says, no. And he says, now look at the, the ends of the edges of it. And I said, I looked at the edges, and, of course, they were all banged up. He said, that bung starter is used to bang around the hole to loosen up the bung. He said, it's called a bung starter. It's to start that bung out of the hole. He said, you can't pull a bung out unless you get it loose. So he said, you bang around the edges of it, and then that bung will loosen right up, and you can pull it out. So I found out how you use a bung starter. (laughs) Okay, and the bung is a stopper in the barrel, but you found out you had a tool that uh, removes them from the the barrel. Yeah, it's a wooden wooden plug yeah <laughs> there must be plenty of tools that you don't know what they're used for or do you have any in in this book yeah i did two or three pages of, of what is this i call them and uh, they uh, uh the interesting thing is that you, today in today's world with computers you can find out a lot of those things and i took that i had one little thing that had to look like a roller thing on it and almost like a tiny uh rolling pin and then it had a long stick on it and some other pieces sticking out on it but it was very well made and very polished and a beautiful tool and i never could find anybody that knew how to use it so i went to the anirondack museum and i said to the curator there i said could you find out what this tool is and she said sure she said i'll have i'll have an answer for you by tuesday she said i'll i'll call you up and let you know so she put it on the internet she said she went to every museum and every historical society that she had on her list and I sent it all the way across the country, and she called me on Tuesday, and I said, well, why, what was it? And she says, I still don't know. <laughs> she never found out what it was. She sent it all the way across the country. So I still carry that tool around, hoping that someday I'll, met, I'll meet the 90-year-old guy that knows how to use it. <laughs> uh, right now, we have no idea what it is. Yeah. And you collect, uh, this really isn't a tool, but you collect burls, B-U-R-L-S? Yes, burls, yeah. What, what are they? They look like warts growing on the trees, and nobody knows what causes them. There's a lot of speculation that there might be a parasite or it might be an interruption in the growth of the tree or whatever. But those burls, they grow like a marbleized piece of wood. They're very solid and marbleized on the inside, and that's why for years people have been able to cut them off the trees and make those beautiful bowls that sell for two or $3,000. But over the years, I, I just collected the burl, and I took the uh, all that black, ugly stuff off the outside of it, and I say the beauty of the burl was inside, and then varnished them, and they came out, you know, like beautiful varnished pieces. And they use them, uh, they use them, you know, on like furniture and so on, burl furniture, and of course the Adirondack rustic uh, furniture makers use them. But anyway, they're uh, they're a beautiful piece of wood. And right now, I I have an exhibit down at the uh, it's the New York State Folklore Folklore Society of a gallery on uh, J Street in Schenectady. They have about 200 of my burls down there on display if anybody wants to go see a burl. But over the uh, centuries, the burl has been a, a sign of immortality. If you had one in your house, you you, uh, you had immortal life and so on. And uh, the uh, Native Americans used them for war clubs because that the way they thought they wouldn't be killed in battle and so on. So it's a it's a nice Adirondack souvenir because <laughs> it's, it's a it's a beautiful thing and it it um, 
came comes right out of the mountains. And the way I got them was I had a friend who worked for Finch and Brine, and whenever they had a logging job, he would cut the burl off and leave it in the woods, and then he called me and tell me where I could go pick it up. So I got a lot of beautiful burls. Adirondacker Don Williams joins us, author of a new book called Grandfather's Tool Chest. He's a well-known educator, lecturer, columnist, and uh, author. He's written 11 books on local and Adirondack history, and this uh, latest is called Grandfather's uh, Tool Chest. Let me ask about your, you for, uh, for a while. Uh, your day job was in education. You were a, a principal of a school in Gloversville? Yes, I was in education for 35 years, and I, uh, I ended up in Gloversville for 27 years doing, uh, being an elementary school principal. So I had a long career in education, and I, uh, I have a little story on that, too, because I had a great aunt, Emma Timmerman, who, was, who is the longest collector of New York State retirement money in the history of the retirement system. And when I went down to sign up to retire, I said to the girl in the office down there, I said, my great aunt, Emma Timmerman, set the record. I said, and she she lived to be 111. I says, I plan on breaking her record. I'm going to write that right down on your record. So she wrote right down on the side of my record that I was going to live to be 111. <laughs> well, you've already made it to 88, right? Yeah, yes, those burls. <laughs> oh, the burls in your house. Are, you're, well, anyway. And also, I, I saw... Indiana Nash did a story about with you in the Gazette, Daily Gazette, and you said your education job, I'm not saying you didn't work hard at it, you did, but it you know, sort of helped you in your Adirondack and outdoor interests and in that you get a nice uh, vacation in the summertime. Yeah, that was part of it, and I, I uh, my grandfather was an Adirondack guide, so I followed his footsteps, and I uh, became an Adirondack guide very early in my career, and I... Um, I was actually the the founding president of the New York State Outdoor Guides. They just gave me the Founders Award for founding the organization and getting it off the ground, and uh, that was 1983. But in any event, uh, being an Adirondack guide also led me to, you know, I worked with the scouting programs, and uh, all my guiding was mostly done free of charge. I took Girl Scout groups and school groups, so I always I was always taking children and and groups into the Adirondacks, and I actually took a, a group of nuns at one time, mainly using uh, educating people about the outdoors and about the Adirondacks, and I I think the more we educate people about the outdoors, the more we're going to take care of it and, uh, and get them appreciated. So I, I spent my life, besides being a principal, I spent my life doing a lot of guiding. And I think it was, it was good for you, or you say that, and I can attest to the concept from the opposite side, if that makes any sense, I've always described myself as a great indoors man. I never liked the out outdoors, and I think I'm paying for it now. But you like the outdoors, and you say that's uh, that helps you with a long life. All right, it's, I haven't had any uh, you know hip problems or knee problems other than a, I I uh, when my wife was ill. I was moving her one day, and I twisted my knee a little bit. But other than that, I I think all that climbing those mountains paid off. You also, I mean, you've, you've written a number of books. I might just ask you about that. And, and, and But you also uh, were a columnist. Uh, you wrote for the Leader Herald and other newspapers and for a couple of magazines. Yeah, for, for 25 years I did the Adirondack column in the Leader Herald and uh, 
an Amsterdam recorder and two of the Adirondack newspapers. And, uh, and I, there again, I was trying to educate people on the Adirondacks. And, you know, I, every week I'd come up with another Adirondack story of some kind that would, would shed a little more light on that history. And, you know, there was no, no end to it. For 25 years, I came up with something every every week. And then the uh, New York Sportsman magazine contacted me and asked me if I would do an Adirondack column for them. So for 20 years, I did a column in the uh, for Paul Kiesler in the New York uh, Sportsman magazine. And uh, we had uh, cable television here in Gloversville for a while, so I did a TV show for three years, and then I went up to Glens Falls and did it for three years. So it was something that I enjoyed doing. And, of course, in the meantime, I any time I came up with something that was really unique that I thought it should be uh, put in a magazine, I wrote for uh, Adirondack Life magazine and others, and uh, we got different articles in, in those magazines. So... I spread the Adirondacks as much as I could. <laughs> and the books that you wrote you, were in general published by Arc. Is it called Arcadia? Yeah, I mean, Arcadia. I've, that's where my books have been published, but they had a name change or something. Yeah, they called the series I did, Images of America series, for published by Arcadia. I did six of those books, and uh, each one has 200 photographs, and I had a huge photograph collection because of... My wife's family and my own family, there are seven generations of Adirondack photographs, and we uh, had all those photographs, and I wanted to preserve them. And, it, boy, that company does a great job. I, you know, all you have to do is write the captions to go with them, and they're, they're happy to publish it. And, uh, and, and they called the company up. Uh, when I retired, they called the company up and asked what they thought of what they could tell about me and the girl told me she says we love mr williams we call him mr adirondack <laughs> well let me ask you about one one story i heard you tell and by the way is uh, don's latest uh, uh book is called uh, grandfather's tool chest but you started I, I believe you started writing about local history with uh some talks you gave and ultimately a book about nick stoner is that correct right i I came to Gloversville as a principal, and the first thing I found out was that there was very little being done on local history in the schools, and the, the, the kids just didn't know their local history. And I grew up in Northville, which is in Fulton County, and Nick Stoner was our local hero, and I, I found that a lot of people didn't even know who Nick Stoner was, and that kind of thing. And I was very uh, inspired by Johnson Hall. When I was in seventh grade, we visited Sir William Johnson's home in Johnstown, and they had a lot of local history there, and I got real interested in local history. So I decided I better start spreading a little local history. So I started writing stories about Nick Stoner, and I would place Nick Stoner in some little local history story. I would find out a, a story, and then I'd put Nick Stoner in as a as a character so to make the kids interested in it. And I went in the classrooms, and I told these stories to the kids. When I had 33 stories written, I said to my wife, Beverly, I said, I think I... Uh, better get those stories written down and get them in a book before I forget them all and, and uh, I won't be around to tell them to the kids. So I went to Jim Tyndall, who was at the Willard Press then, doing a Adirondack and other books. He did Sky Pilot and some of those other well-known books. And I, I said to Mr. Tyndall, I got five kids and no money, but I got a nice book. And he said, well, let me take a look at it. Boy, within two days, he called me right up. And he said, that's a great book. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'll, I'll publish that for you, he says, and you can pay me after you sell it. Now, a new author doesn't get that chance very often, but no. I started selling that Nick Stoner book in 1969, and um, 
Dr. Palmer, who was a local historian, says, you know, that, that book will never sell. He says, that's just trash. He, did, he didn't like the way I put Nick Stoner in all the you know, all of the, the stories. And uh, so uh, so I didn't worry too much about it. And the book started selling. And here it is 50 years later, and I still get a royalty check from Nick Stoner. They, they reprinted it in paperback <laughs> in later years. But uh, that book is still selling after 50 years. Now, there's not too many books around, I think, that sell for that length of time. I mean, Nick Stoner was a real character, but it sounds like you've the, the uh, part of this book is fiction, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's fiction because I use him as a vehicle and I placed him in, in the, whatever was going on here. I put it, made him as a character in, the, in that story. And uh, he, he, he served in the War of 1812 and in the Revolutionary War. He's one of the few people in the country that did that. And besides that, he was a, he was a school trustee and he was a deputy sheriff. And he did a lot of, you know, really great things in, during his lifetime. And people were beginning to, you know, they were always... Uh, beaten up on him, and, and the newspapers would put in Nick Stoner, the Indian killer, and those kind of things. And I, I was trying to correct his the, his character because he was a friend with the Indians. He had a, an Indian uh, up in Lake Pleasant that was his his hunting buddy. And when the Indians came to uh, Fulton County, he always let them sleep in his barn. He was friendly with the Indians. The Indian he didn't like was the one that was in the tavern bragging that he killed, he'd killed uh, Nick's father. <laughs> and so that's the Indian he didn't like. But he, otherwise, he was he was a really a community worker and an excellent citizen for this part of the country. So he could be a you know a role model for the rest of us. As you say, he had the. He had a very li- and a long life, right? He he lived. He was in the Revolution, and you say in the War of eighteen twelve as well. Yeah, he was thirty seven years old, and he said, "We beat the British once. We got to beat them again." Did he live up where they have the? Where they have a golf course named for him, right? Yeah, yeah. He was up there in Newkirk's Mills, which is up near uh, Kroger Lake. You know, they put the statue on the golf course, so you go up there and you can see Nick Stoner standing up there on the Nick Stoner golf course. <laughs> Well, let's go back to your uh, the current book, Grandfather's uh, Tool Chest. W- where can you uh, get one of those? Well, right now they're in uh, the Johnstown um, bookstore, Mysteries on Main Street, and uh, in the country store up in Norville, Anirondack Country Store. And then, I, of course, you can get them from me if anybody wants to contact me. I, I can give you my address if you want me to, or phone number. Yeah, uh, but you're not on Amazon, for example. No, 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 I didn't go with Amazon. I, I thought about that, but I talked to a lot of people, and they said you get lost in the shuffle on Amazon. So I, I wanted to be kind of separate, and I'm kind of a, as you can gather, an independent Adirondacker. <laughs> I think it's probably worth it. I'm gonna when we're done talking, I'll want to talk to you about getting a copy of this book for my son-in-law. Uh, the, the book. Cost fifty five dollars, right? Yes, yeah, and and I did that purposely. I you know I cut every corner I could to keep the price down, and I talked to five publishing companies that all told me that it was too big and it would not, they wouldn't publish it because they couldn't recoup their money in a timely fashion. So uh, I I went with a company that does uh, let's see they do publishing, and they do binding. And then they have a branch that will do the editing and all that kind of stuff if you want it. And then they have a branch that will do the the promotion and the marketing if you want it. But you don't have to take those two. So you can cut the price down by just doing the, the publishing and the binding. And they do mm-hmm. a great job. I mean, there's a beautiful book. And uh, 
I'm very pleased with it. And and by doing that that way, we kept the price down. That book would have been, you know, really a probably a price so high that it wouldn't sell. I can remember Wardner Cadbury told me he did a beautiful book on the famous Arthur Tate author or artist Tate, and he uh, he had to sell it for seventy five dollars. He said he did that beautiful book, but it never sold. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't want to do a book that would never sell, so I cut all the corners I could and. I sell it for $55, and I pay the postage myself just so that it doesn't add on to the people. Okay. And, and so uh, what is your, uh, what people reach you through the mail? Is that, yeah, what probably, is that? If they want to send me $55 to 435 North Main Street. 435 North Main, Gloversville, 12078. I right. looked that up. Again, back to the book itself, Grandfather's Tool Chest, uh, stories about 400 tools, uh, maybe from the old days or some from the new days, your grandfather had a tool chest. Do you? Oh, yeah. I got I got a lot of tool chests. I, I, that's another thing I collected. So I probably have 12 tool, tool chests anyway. Are there any other tools that we haven't discussed that you'd like to bring up? With 400, I could probably talk all day. But I, I, one that I always like to talk about is uh, burlap bags, because you don't think of that as a tool. But if you look at the definitions of tools, there's a lot of different definitions. But basically, it makes our work easier. Is probably the easiest way to say it. It's kind of an extension of our hands, and and, it, and it's uh, something that we can uh, we can all agree. It's something that made it possible for us to get out of the caves. If we were if we didn't have <laughs> tools, we couldn't have built houses and done all the gardening and doing all the other things we do. So the tools got us out of the caves. And so burlap bags to me was a a very simple tool, and it's made out of flax. In other words, it's something that grows in the field. I think it's the most amazing thing in the world that you can grow up a, a, a grain, and then you can turn it into fine linen, or you can turn it into a burlap bag. And uh, if you stop to think about burlap bags, they, they of course, for years they carried the grain in the bags, or they still do. And uh, if you had a potato farm, you could carry your potatoes in a burlap bag. They use it for wallpaper in a lot of the houses in the, over the years to keep the cold out. And they uh, made rad rugs out of out of burlap. And, of course, the kids had sack races and burlap bags. And so, anyway, this very simple grain that you can grow, you can turn into a tool that has, has a lot of uses. There was an old fellow up in Wells that used to come down to my father-in-law's general store and He'd buy all his groceries and put it in his burlap bag and put it on his back and go back up into the windfall. So he used it to carry all his groceries. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Now, so, what do you think about, uh, is the Adirondacks changing, or how are the Adirondacks uh, changing these days? I think the biggest change is that more and more people are discovering it, and that that's what's creating the, you know, a lot of the discussions today is what are you going to do with these huge crowds of people that are, that are coming to the Adirondacks and it's good that they're getting into the out of doors but it also it's got to be uh, controlled and got to be watched over because they've had just you know all kinds of problems with it. Uh, grandfather's uh, tool chest it has a lot of pictures and so on and so forth do you still have a lot of tools? <laughs> do you, I, I still have do, 400 do, tools <laughs> I have a I have a huge huge Adirondack collection. I'm trying to get the county to buy it and and preserve it because I hate to just break it up and uh, and uh, let it go. Right. In fact, I have probably over 500 of those Adirondack weirdwood pieces that are uh, 
the wishing wells and jewelry chests and nut bowls, all those things that have the bark left on them and they're varnished and beautiful. And their Adirondack Times Union is working with another group right now. They're doing a documentary on them. They came and photographed them all and had me mm. talk. And they were going to go up in the woods next week and so I can show them where the white ash came from that they made those. And uh, they're going to, there'll be a documentary probably on WMHT when they get it finished. Yeah, but anyway, uh, I got all those. I got 1,800 Adirondack books. <laughs> and, and, of course, the 400 tools. And all all other kinds of things that I just well, hate to see it. You know, it's a lifelong collection. I hate to see it broken up. But right now, I haven't found anybody that's gonna would put it in a museum or keep it for the for okay. preservation. Okay, Don Williams. I'm sorry we're uh, just out of time, but it's been a pleasure talking with you. He's author of the book Grandfather's Tool Chest, among many others, um, many other books. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>